It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. We start today with big news in the world of business and labor. Did you hear about this one? A union at Amazon. Wow, this is the very first successful union drive at Amazon in the United States. It happened at an Amazon warehouse in New York City. Could this spark a unionization drive at Amazon in Canada next? I've got a great guest standing by on this. First, have a listen to this report from MSNBC. You will hear Chris Smalls here. He is the leader of the newly formed Amazon Labor Union. Have a listen to this. We got the juggler. We went for the juggler. And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other... Uh business to know that uh, things have changed. We're going we to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. So the first union in American history. Yeah. Let's go! Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got to thank Amazon because they made this all possible. <laughs> Today, Amazon workers at a Staten Island warehouse successfully voted to unionize. That is the first time that has ever happened at any of the company's U.S. facilities. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Stephen Greenhouse. Stephen was a longtime labor reporter for the New York Times, more than 30 years there. He's the author of the book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Okay, Stephen, you have covered a ton of union organizing drives in your time. Where does this one rank in your mind in terms of what these workers achieved here? So I've I've been writing about labor since 1995, now for 27 years. And this is by far the biggest beat the odds, David versus Goliath unionization win I've ever seen. I mean, this was over 8,000 workers unionized. And it was not done by a humongous union like the Teamsters. It was done by the small, new, newfangled union founded by a guy who was fired by Amazon and kind of wanted to fix things there. And it was really, you know, this little guy taking on this $470 billion corporation and one of the world's richest men, Jeff Bezos. And against all odds, he won and he stunned everybody. And this is huge. It's sending shockwaves, I'm sure, through corporate America and perhaps in Canada as well. They're wondering, well, gee, if you can unionize Amazon, which is probably the most ferociously anti-union company in the U.S., then maybe Walmart's vulnerable, maybe Target's vulnerable, maybe McDonald's is vulnerable. Yeah, and like you mentioned, in most big union drives, you've got like professional organizers going in from a big union. And like you said, this is not the Teamsters. This is not the United Steelworkers. This is like kind of a, a, a grassroots group here that formed their own union called the Amazon labor union how rare is that to pull something off like that at the at kind of like the grassroots level without a big huge powerful union behind you mike it's it's extremely rare i mean here in the u.s we're seeing some new little unions organize a coffee shop with 20 workers that's not hard but to unionize an amazon warehouse with eight thousand plus workers yeah. taking on this ferociously anti-union company, was pretty amazing. Basically, it was this fired guy, Christian Smalls, 
and two dozen people who work inside the warehouse. And they somehow reached out to thousands and thousands and thousands of people within the warehouse. And, you know, and they almost made it a popularity contest in ways. They, they had barbecues. They had picnics. They gave out free pizzas in the break room. Uh, they talked up people at bus stops. And people really liked them. They saw, these are our coworkers. These are our friends. They really care to make things better for us. And it wasn't, oh, we have to choose between the big bad union and Amazon. It was like, we have to choose between our friends and coworkers and big bad Amazon. And I think that's why a lot of people thought, you know, it's a no brainer to vote for the union. Right. You think that Amazon made some dumb moves here along the way? Like at one point, this guy, Christian Smalls, the leader of this little union, Amazon, what, they got the police to go in there and arrest the guy. So, you know, Amazon, you know, probably pays, you know, uh, we just read that paid over $4 million last year to anti-union consultants and lawyers. So, you know, supposedly they're very smart people, but they made a ton of very dumb mistakes, shooting themselves in the foot. So, you know, Christian Smalls was the head of this new union, and he was being very nice, delivering free lunch to some workers in Amazon. He went onto company property, and Amazon called the police to have him arrested, and they made him into a martyr. Yeah. Uh, this is a facility where probably majority of the workers are uh, African-American or Hispanic, and one of the anti-union consultants calls the union organizers thugs which a lot of people thought that's pretty racist. I think that also won a lot of sympathy for Christian Smalls and really helped turn uh, some people against Amazon. Speaking to a labor journalist, Stephen Greenhouse, about the first union, successful union effort at Amazon in the United States on Staten Island in New York City. Where does this go from here now, Stephen? Like, you know, the, the fight, it sounds, it seems like in some ways the battle has just begun here because you know that Amazon's still going to fight this thing tooth and nail from here, right? Sure. I mean, that's a great question where it goes from here. You know, this, as I said, if we really ascend shockwaves, and, and I'm sure that people at dozens of other Amazon warehouses are contacting Christian Smalls and the Amazon Labor Union to say, how can we do what you did? You know, how do we do this magical elixir of worker organizing to make it work here? And, you know, Christian Smalls and his partner, you know, uh, co-organizer Derek Palmer, brilliant guys, but there are only two of them. And like, they have to figure out how to spread their magic and wisdom and organizing genius across the country. I think it would be great if other unions, you know, you know, kind of gave them a lot of money, lawyering resources so that they could help, you know, crisscross the United States, maybe Canada to talk to workers about Amazon workers to talk about how to unionize at Starbucks. Uh, you know, we're seeing this huge wildfire of worker to worker excitement and organizing. And maybe that could happen also at Amazon, but it's much easier, Mike, to unionize a Starbucks cafe with 28 workers than yeah. Uh, an Amazon warehouse with 5,000 or 8,000 workers. And you're absolutely right, Mike, that Amazon is going to fight this tooth and nail. It will probably litigate against it. It may well drag its feet on ever reaching a contract in order to you know, make some of the workers sour on their union. So this is a huge victory, but the workers really have their work cut out for them to try to win a great contract to make things better for the 8,000 plus workers in Staten Island in New York. I, I was just thinking, like, what must be going through Jeff Bezos's mind, and it, it occurred to me that the last thing he would want to see is is actually negotiate a contract that would give these workers a raise and improve working conditions, because it would just encourage more union efforts in in his other plants. So I wonder if if this could end up at 
if this even if it eventually gets to a bargaining table, would Amazon just flat out refuse to sign a deal, force a strike, a lockout, anything, starve these workers out, just anything to break this union? Uh, so under American law, it's illegal to refuse to bargain. It's illegal to refuse to bargain in bad faith. Right. It's illegal to bargain in bad faith, to refuse to bargain in good faith. Sorry, Mike. And Amazon might try to drag things out and kind of make believe it's engaged in good faith bargaining while really to try to drag it out for one year, two years, three years. Right. In Canada, in some provinces in Canada, if an employer drags out bargaining for months and years, the union can insist on having an arbitrator appointed to, you know, say this is going to be a fair contract. In the U.S., we don't have that. So there's really a lot of incentive for anti-union employers to drag the negotiations out for years and years and sometimes never reach a contract. But the first thing is you got to win the unionization vote, you know, to get to negotiations. And that's what they did in Staten Island. And that's why, you know, all these pro-union people are like jumping up and down saying, this is a near miracle. You succeeded in organizing probably the nation's most ferocious anti-union company. Stephen Greenhouse, thanks a lot for coming on with your analysis today. I appreciate it. Okay, great to be here, Mike. Keep up the good work. All right, All right. thanks a lot. Stephen Greenhouse there. He's a longtime labor reporter, formerly with the New York Times. I appreciate his time today. Let's talk about the images out of Ukraine now that are shocking the world today of dead bodies of civilians strewn across the street in a town northwest of the capital of Kiev following the withdrawal of Russian forces from that area. These images are shocking. They've shocked the entire world. I've got Canada's former ambassador to Russia, Jeremy Kinsman, standing by. First, have a listen to this report now from CNN. From the area north of Kiev, in their wake, scenes of utter destruction. Whole blocks of houses flattened. Ukrainian authorities saying they believe dead bodies are still lying underneath. But here, the dead also lay in the open. Ukrainian National Police showed us this mass grave in Bucha, saying they believed up to 150 civilians might be buried here, but no one knows the exact number. People killed while the Russian army occupied this town. Okay, that's uh, horrifying scenes that we're seeing around the world right now out of Ukraine. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jeremy Kinsman, Canada's former ambassador to Russia. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mr. Kinsman, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for doing this. So the images that we're seeing out of Russia are sickening, they're heartbreaking, they're very disturbing to see. We've got images of dead bodies strewn through the streets of this town near Kiev. What are your thoughts on, on what we're seeing here? Well, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely horrible. And uh, I think that uh, the number of witnesses uh, and the authentications by groups like Human Rights Watch or indeed uh, by people on the ground uh, with CNN and uh, and The Guardian and uh, other, uh, you know, uh, media, uh, they've they've seen these these men uh, that have been uh, shot, uh, executed uh, in execution sort of style. Um, they appear to be men uh, either chosen at random by an army uh, retreating. Uh, it's, it's gone kind of semi-crazy. Or they may have been uh, men who belong to the Ukrainian territorial force or supporters of it. And then there's the mass grave, and there is uh, clearly evidence of that in the churchyard. So it's absolutely horrible. Um, and, uh, 
And I think that, uh, you know, the evidence gathering has to uh, continue, even though it's very unlikely that the International Criminal Court, though it is asserting jurisdiction, it's going to be a, a very long a road to bring anybody uh, to any kind of trial, because, of course, Russia, any uh, just like the United States, uh, is not a party to the treaty. They're not one of the 121 countries that are party to the International Criminal Court that accept its jurisdiction. So there's going to be trouble in the ultimate conclusion. But I think the revelation of these things is is very disturbing. And I, let me uh, just go a little bit beyond. You see, you had a report from CNN. There was one last night that I find particularly wrenching uh, concerning a, a girl, a freelance journalist called Irina Dubchenko. She's in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, up, up near Kharkiv. And she was, uh, she was grabbed uh, from her home uh, by uh, Russian soldiers or officials, security officials, and uh, taken under arrest. She's a, she's a mother of a small child, a four, four-year-old girl, and she's, uh, she's disappeared. And, and what was her uh, offense? Uh, she may well, I'm sure she does, support the Ukrainian side, but her offense was that she had uh, taken into her care a wounded uh, Ukrainian soldier. And, uh, and so the Russians have uh, arrested her for that and apparently are going to put her on trial in Donetsk uh, for that. That is very specifically against the Geneva Convention. But it's also part of the game plan for you know, what you do when you want to take over another country. And the Russians came in there expecting they were going to take over Ukraine. And now they're not. So you've got two things going on. You've got soldiers uh, in, around Kiev, I think, who are going nuts, uh, who are killing people, or maybe just vindictively, uh, executions. Are they out of control, or is it controlled from the very top in Russia? And then you got, in Donetsk, you had kind of a muscle memory of, of, of what the Russians intended to do as they took over a country. Well, you know, they're not going to take it over, but they do. Uh, they are in control of some districts. I think that, uh, that you know, there has to be a scrutiny of this. Uh, Russia is going to protest and say it's all, you know, we're, they're being gamed, everybody's yeah. being gamed, that these are setups, right. uh, these are actors. Uh, it's it's got to be resisted. But it can't, we can't allow it to take our attention off the essential goal here, which is to get an end to the fighting and an outcome which uh, is uh, fair to all concerned, what? and then deal with the aftermath. What do I, think, you make... I am afraid that it tends to complicate that process. Yeah. People dig in even more. So there you go. R- Russia has put out a statement saying that this is this was fake. This was some kind of propaganda setup. But like you, like you said, Human Rights Watch, which is an independent rights group, ha- has documented war crimes on the ground in Ukraine. Let me. Add, we yeah. just got one minute left here. What do you make of the fact that Russia is withdrawing from these areas? What's your analysis of that? We've got a minute here. Well, they were beaten. I mean, they're withdrawing because they weren't making progress. I mean, you yeah. saw what happened to that so-called forty-mile column of tanks and other vehicles uh, that just got mired down and it got clobbered by uh, by javelin rockets and things. So they're pulling back. They were they they were so overconfident that they thought they could get away with having offensive in six or seven different places with totally inadequate personnel. So now they're focusing on the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine in the east, where they also misestimated how 
supported they were going to be by the people there. They bombed the hell out of them. Uh, what can they expect? Obviously, they're uh, deeply, deeply uh, okay. hateful of, of the Russians now. Uh, they're focusing on that to try to get some kind of a win, something that Putin can present as some kind of a win uh, to his people. But Thank all you. of the evidence right now shows that, uh, that that's, that's just not what's happening. Uh, he's, uh, this is a catastrophe for him. Jeremy Kinsman, thank you for your time again today. Appreciate it. You bet, Mike. Uh, all right. Jeremy Kinsman is Canada's former ambassador to Russia. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the major changes coming to BC's traffic court system now. What if you get a ticket for speeding or distracted driving and you think it's a bum rap? You want to fight the power? Fight that ticket. A lot of these disputes could be moving online, online, not in a real courtroom. You would fight the ticket online instead. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee. She is a lawyer specializing in traffic law, acumen law, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Thanks a lot for coming on. So this is very interesting. Uh, Tell me how this is going to work here. So essentially, the uh, provincial government, if this legislation passes, would be creating a system where they can designate certain traffic ticket offenses. So likely the common ones like speeding and cell phones um, that you and I talk about all the time, um, they would be moved to online disputes. And there's lots of, you know, good reasons for this. It eases a burden on the courts. It's a lot more convenient for disputants because the disputes don't take that long. It frees up officers so that they can get back to the road much more quickly. Um, and it allows them to be done on a more flexible schedule than working within regular court sitting hours. Okay. How does the system work right now? Like, is everything done in, in like an actual real live courthouse right now if you dispute a ticket? Yeah, and it has been since uh, about June of 2020. We've been back to in-person court uh, for traffic court, except for a one-month period in January of this year. Um, And you go to court, the officer is there. Usually you have a little conversation with the officer in the hallway outside court to determine whether it's going to resolve or whether or not it's going to go to trial. And then the matter is heard in a physical courtroom in front of a judicial justice. You can apply to appear by telephone, but right now there is no process in the traffic courtrooms to allow for online appearances. Okay. Now, during COVID, the last few years, we have seen a lot of these type of disputes move online just as a matter of necessity because of the pandemic. And I know you've done a lot of these cases online, right? How has that, how has that been working out? I've found online court to be very efficient um, when it comes to actual like dispositions and minor court appearances. For trials, it's a lot more complex because you're testing the evidence. You want to assess credibility. You need to be able to look at a witness and see how they react. I have not enjoyed any of the trial experiences that I've had using online means, um, and I I do prefer in-person for a trial. Right. So now with this new system, it sounds like a lot of these tickets could just be moving on, uh, moving to online even after the pandemic is over. Is that correct? Yes, and the government yeah. could even regulate that they have to be online so that you don't well. get a choice to cross-examine the officer in person or anything like that. Okay, is this a good thing or a bad thing for people who want to fight a traffic ticket? I think depriving people of their ability to choose what to do is a bad thing. I think that allowing people the opportunity to be heard online if they want to do that is a good thing. And so I have a sort of a mixed response to that. Um, I, I'm 
distrustful of the government's motives in the way that they've crafted the legislation, because if they wanted to just make online an option for people, there were uh, many easier ways they could have done so, including just by purchasing the technology and making a minor amendment to the Offense Act to allow for MS Teams appearances. But they're not doing that. Speaking of traffic lawyer Kyla Lee here about moving traffic ticket disputes to online. This is contained in a recent government bill in front of the B.C. legislature. Why, why do you think the government's doing this? Is it to save money? Oh, absolutely. Traffic yeah. court is expensive, you know, and, and we've seen during the pandemic, they've been running multiple courtrooms um, at a time in courthouses to try and deal with the backlog that was created during the shutdown. Uh, they've had some traffic court running on weekends and in evenings, even now. Um, and and I, it's all expensive. You have to have sheriffs, you have to have judicial justices who are paid, you know, over $100,000 a year, uh, be present and available to hear these cases. By moving them online, by eliminating judicial justices, they can use public servants who are paid a lot less money to adjudicate these disputes and it saves them millions okay like you i start to get a little suspicious about this stuff though as well and you've written a blog post analyzing this bill and let's talk about some of your concerns like right now like it sounds like the government could set down new rules and what kind of witnesses could appear or even if you have a if you can have a lawyer present when you go through an online dispute yeah, so they're going to give people the option of a resolution conference, which is essentially an opportunity to have a meeting with some type of neutral party, as well as somebody representing the prosecution. It doesn't have to be an actual prosecutor or the police officer, and then um, a party representing the accused. But they have a limitation in that they can actually regulate who may appear for the accused, as well as who may not appear. And that, to me, is very concerning. Now, they're not overtly saying they're going to say no lawyers, but who would they not want to appear? It's obviously not going to be the person who is charged with the traffic ticket offense because they have a right to be there. You could never say you can't come and deal with your matter yourself. So they're trying to get rid of people having legal representation, which to me is incredibly concerning. Well, can, how can they do that? Like, how can they say you can't have a lawyer when you're in front of, effectively in front of a court? Well, they're not calling it a court anymore. There's another disturbing oh. change that they're making is they're changing it from trial to hearing. And as soon as they do that, what they're doing is they're saying this isn't a this isn't an offense any longer. This is effectively just an administrative process. So we can put limitations on your rights. And they've eliminated your right to have a lawyer in all sorts of other contexts. The Civil Resolution Tribunal, which deals with strata disputes, which deals with um, small claims matters under $5,000, which deals with um, uh, with your ICBC injury claims now, uh, all of those prohibit you from having a lawyer. Yeah. In your experience, like if people get a traffic ticket, let's say we're uh, distracted driving, speeding, and they think, look, this is not fair. I'm going to fight this. Do a lot of people... Can you fight that on your own? Like, you don't have to hire a lawyer, right? Like, they don't have to phone you and, and hire you. Like, you go and represent yourself in traffic court and fight it yourself. Can you not? Yeah, you're absolutely entitled yeah. to represent yourself. Um, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't recommend it. I see a lot of self-represented people in traffic court, and they, you know, they don't understand the nuances of the evidence that's necessary to uh, prove their innocence in certain circumstances or gaps in the evidence. And I've watched people conduct their own trials and provide evidence that was the evidence upon which they were convicted because they didn't realize there was a problem in the police evidence that shouldn't have caused them to be convicted, and they filled in that blank by testifying when they never should have. Right, yeah. So they don't they just don't know that like what are some of the other common pitfalls when you're representing yourself? 
A lot of people also don't understand how various convictions or outcomes of your traffic ticket can affect your driving record. So I see a lot of people pleading guilty, thinking that pleading to something lesser doesn't have any points um, or thinking that because they're getting fewer points, they may not lose their licenses. But it's a lot more complicated than that. So having a lawyer helps you understand what your plea might have as implications for you on your ability to drive in the future. Well, okay, so if they go to an online system for disputing these tickets and they bring and they say you can't have a lawyer, I mean, could you foresee a situation where just a lot of people get railroaded by the system? Oh, absolutely. Especially uh, when you eliminate a justice um, having to appear in these in these conferences, you have essentially a government funded adjudicator and some type of government funded representative for the prosecution, both of whom are not looking after your interests. And there's nobody there, if you can't have a lawyer, to advocate for what your interests and your rights are in that conference. Okay, this is really interesting. We're going to have to watch this closely to see how this unfolds here with the government moving to this online system for disputing traffic tickets. Here's what I want to do right now. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more with Kyla Lee. Let's open the phone line. So phone me on this now. We always get great calls on this. So if you've ever had a traffic ticket that you thought was a bum rap, whether it's like a speeding ticket, distracted driving, a parking ticket. Have you ever fought the power? Have you ever fought back? Did you win? Did you lose? Phone me and tell me how that went. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. If you have a question about BC traffic law, maybe you're wondering uh, about a ticket you've received in the past, Phone Kyla Lee right now. This is your opportunity to speak to an expert. And what do you think about this idea of moving these disputes online and maybe you might not even have a lawyer? Phone me on that, too. James in Coquitlam. Hi, James. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. Yes. Um, so a good few years ago, wife gets a traffic ticket up in Vailmont, slightly over the limit. She was going to dispute it. Of course, as soon as we hand over the license, his eyes get as big as saucers because he sees the lower mainland address and knows that we're not going to drive all the way up to Prince George or wherever the hell we had to go to fight the tickets. Same with the brother-in-law, got the ticket down in trail, Pitt Meadows on his license, gets the ticket. They know you're not going to dispute it if you're from far, land far, far away. So, so, so when, you, case, when, you say, when you say the police officer's eyes widened, are you, are you suggesting this, this cop was taking pleasure in, in writing I, a... <laughs> my, my suspicion is, is that if we, if we were local, we'd have got off the hook. Oh, over the limit. But okay. he knew we're not going to head up into the northern central interior to fight a traffic ticket. Uh, right. He knew, so, so he knew he was. He knew he got his money. He knew was we were going to have any trouble out of us. Speeding he ticket, right? Head up and dispute us. How much was it? Was a speeding ticket, right? Speeding ticket, moving violation. Yeah, eighty something dollars. But yeah. so you know, we didn't think that you'd have to go in person right up to the northern interior to dispute us. Okay, so maybe you would like maybe you would like to go online to fight a ticket. Then, in that case, right? If you're on and you're heading out into the Okanagan. Sure, you pick up a ticket. It happens. You run a stop sign. You're not paying attention. You're somewhere you don't know. Yeah, I'd like to go online and and, and you know at least at least fight the thing. Okay, you know, of... if you if you get these tickets way out in wherever it is, you're yeah. probably not going to show up to to fight us. Okay, you I think that's a good. Punch. I think it's a good point. Thank you for the call, Kyla. What do you think of that? And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I think there is some merit in the idea of moving some traffic court disputes online. But again, it should be the choice of the individual. So if you are from far away, then you can make that choice. But if you want to be there in person, you should be allowed to be there in person.
Right. And the system that the government is proposing is you would not have the choice. The government would have the choice. They would right. regulate it. So regulate. you you get no say. <laughs> okay. Let's go to Chris on the line in Langley. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, Kyle, I enjoy uh, following you on Twitter. Pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> I've bought a few tickets over my years. Uh, I'm a career driver, and I have yeah, bad luck or just... Uh, Part of the game, I guess, uh, having used the phone and whatnot. Uh, uh, curious, I would love to have you uh, in some of the disputes I've, I was in. What, what would it cost me, on average, to have a, a lawyer <laughs> present? And, uh, and the other question is, is what, what kind of percentage, what, what would be the chances of uh, your success versus mine, or, or, or in general for a lawyer, what would okay. their success rate be? Okay, Chris, we're going right to the bottom line here, Kyla. How much do you, how much do you charge, and what is your success rate? Well, I won't give a, a, a direct quote over the phone because it does depend on uh, the courthouse location as well as the offense. We have different fees based on the type of offense, but it's usually proportionate to the type of ticket and the seriousness of the consequences. So most in most circumstances, if you're going to face a, a license suspension or a penalty point premium, it's cheaper to hire the lawyer than to pay the ticket. Um, the uh, success rate really, again, you know, it depends on the type of ticket. There are some tickets uh, types that I haven't lost one yet. <laughs> Fingers what, crossed. What type is that? Uh, like driving without due care and attention. Um, I have succeeded in every one of those disputes, and that's one of the most serious tickets you can get. Um, electronic device tickets, um, I have a very high success rate at resolving them um, in a way that doesn't uh, cause my clients to lose their licenses, but the trials are very hard to succeed in. And speeding tickets, pretty good success. I've, I've won quite a few speeding ticket trials. Okay, Ray on the line in Ashcroft. Hi, Ray, go ahead. Hi there. Um, uh, in 2020, in the fall of 2020, I sold a, a motorcycle <clears throat> in the spring of 2021. Uh, the fellow that bought the motorcycle uh, smashed it up, and uh, 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 ICBC sent me a bill for $1,000, which is was deductible of the house insurance. Uh because the guy never transferred uh, the guy never transferred the motorcycle. So, uh, hmm. Okay, well, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't sound fair. Kyla, what, you ever heard of that? Yeah, I mean, you have to be very careful when you're selling a vehicle that you make sure to complete and ensure that all the transfer paperwork is filed and that uh, you take your insurance off, off the vehicle. Um, and I recommend if you're selling or buying a vehicle that you actually go to ICBC with the person who is purchasing it to make sure that the paperwork is actually filed with ICBC. Because otherwise people do this where they don't, you know, they don't put the vehicle in their name for a variety of reasons, um, usually none of them good, and then you can end up on the hook as your color uh as your color is okay let's go to derek on the line in squamish hi derek hey mike um Hi. long story short got a ticket went to court representing myself the officer was there he gave his story but during his uh deposition if you will um he neglected to say that where i got the ticket was in the province of british columbia and the judge hearing the case uh said to me mr knee because you don't have a lawyer I, as the judge, am representing you, and I have to ensure you get a free trial. She, she threw the case out because the cop was not complete in his uh, giving of the information. So wow. we're being represented by the judge in any case, whether you have a lawyer or not. Kyla, your thoughts? 
judges do have to provide assistance to self-represented individuals, but it's only a limited amount of assistance. There's a few sort of magic words that have to be said in every trial, including proving that it took place in British Columbia, uh, proving identity, um, a few other things like that. If there are gaps on those essential facts, then a justice is obligated to throw the matter out. Um, but there are also less essential facts um, that, if argued correctly, could result in somebody being uh, acquitted that a judicial justice doesn't have the obligation to assist you on in traffic court. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. I always appreciate your time. What's your website if people want to uh, contact you? If they want to reach me, they can find me at kylalee.ca or vancouvercriminallaw.com. Okay, sounds great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, Kyla Lee there. I appreciate her time today. Thanks a lot for all your calls. All right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about the by-election now mm-hmm. has been called in the provincial riding of Vancouver, Quilchenna. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon uh, hoping to return to the B.C. legislature. I think you'll have a fairly straightforward path to, to getting in. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Here's a video we put out on uh, Twitter on the weekend. I'm excited that there's now a by-election being held in the riding of Vancouver, Quilchenna. And I look forward to working every single day hard to earn the support and trust of the residents of that riding so that we can get back into Victoria, hold the NDP to account. He's always got to put that sort of up with people piano music in the background there. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, there should be a cakewalk for Kevin Falcon and, yeah. and the BC Liberals. But if there's an upset, that would be a disaster for, for the Liberals. So this is one of, I think this is one the first or second strongest um, seat uh, historically for the BC Liberals and their predecessors, the um, Social Credit Party. The NDP really doesn't have a, a ghost of a chance here, but you never know. Yeah, the NDP candidate is Dr. Jeanette Walsh, or Dr. Jeanette Ash, I should say. And she is a social justice advocate and also happens to be the spouse of uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, which is yeah, interesting. Very interesting. It's part of the NDP family, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy Stewart, a former federal NDP MP. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, she's got her work cut out for her. This is a very strong, this is a very affluent riding Yeah, uh, the west side of Vancouver. It yeah. doesn't get much more affluent than that. West Vancouver is basically, it's it's... It's mirror across uh, across the, uh, the internet there. Taking a look at the the result in that riding in the 2020 BC election, Andrew Wilkinson, the former Liberal leader, is his seat. He stepped aside for Falcon here. He got 56 percent of the vote uh, compared to the NDP candidate. Got 28 percent, so he won by more than 6,000 votes. Like you can't get much of a safer liberal. Well, you know, low is usually lower. Uh, t- sorry, turnout is usually lower in by-elections. It'll be interesting how m- how many times John Horgan goes to that right. I mean, Horgan's popularity is running ahead of his party. Yeah. Uh, does he sort of use his popularity as a as a, on the on the campaign hustings there? I suspect he's going to pay at least one visit to that riding during the campaign. What's your read of Falcon's leadership of the Liberal Party so far? Where does he want to take this party, or what's his strategy in going up against Horgan, a pretty popular premier right now? He is, but I noticed that Falcon's also talking about issues about uh, that got the NDP where they are, which is affordability issues, childcare, for example. Uh, is one he's stressing. He's looking for relief on some taxation side. 
Uh, Falcon, historically, anybody who's known him through the years, I mean, he started out from a fairly right-wing perspective. Yeah. I think he shifted a bit uh, away from that uh, right side of the spectrum, but he's still on the right side of the spectrum. So I'm, I'm not sure he's going to take the party more to the right or more to the middle to get more of those affordability issues. I, again, right now, though, I'm not sure any political party can sell itself with credibility when it comes to solving affordability because so many external factors are there now that weren't there a number of years ago. Inflation now is yeah. you know around 5% could go higher, and the, not much the government's going to be able to do about that. And, and no one's been able to solve the housing situation. Last Angus Reid poll, uh, the NDP had a very commanding lead over the Liberals in, in popular vote and in terms of leadership approval with John Horgan. But the NDP is getting absolutely, I think they got like 9% of the of the electorate think it's doing a good job solving the housing affordability issue. So if, I'm not sure any party is going to be given credibility by the voters when it comes to solving that one. Well, speaking of housing, the NDP will portray Falcon as the champion of the rich and privileged and, and point out that in his 10 years since he's been away from politics, he was working largely yeah. as a real estate developer, making a lot of money. So you, you will hear that continually from the NDP. Oh, yeah. It, and, and, you know, Falcon likes to point to his record, but it's a two-way street. Um, he yeah. did build a lot of things when he was uh, transportation minister. Yeah. That's all well and good. But the NDP is going to dredge up a lot of things that were done on his watch as finance minister, as health minister. Uh, once you're in politics for a long time, you've got a record, and that can cut both ways. One thing about Falcon, though, I think he's a hard worker, and uh, he's very determined here to make the most of this. And I, I don't think he should be underestimated. I think he'll Not be a better leader than Wilkinson. Oh, yeah. I think he, he's a better communicator. I yeah. think he's a better uh, politician. He's a, better, he's a street-smart politician. Yeah. Um, but it's not just him. You know, They lost their way big time in a number of ridings in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver. And the question is, is this NDP penetration of places like Langley, Abbotsford, and Chilliwack a one-time deal? Or is this the sign of shifting demographics, which favors the New Democrats and the sort of the centrist party, uh, away from um, away from the BC Liberals? I mean, th those are traditionally rich, fertile BC Liberal strongholds, and they lost them to the NDP. Okay, that's a key by-election. We're going to follow for you here on the show. It's Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon against NDP candidate uh, Dr... Look at that. No, I've forgotten her name already. Dr. Jeanette Ash. Ash. Okay. The green, That's the, the Greens, last time I forget her name. I believe the Greens okay. also have a candidate there as well. Okay, we're going to follow that. And by the way, I put out the invite to both of them to come on the show here for a debate. Mm. And and they both have essentially agreed. Okay. At least their people did. So we're going to set that up for you in the days ahead. We started the show today. I, I thought it was really interesting to see a union actually breaking through and organizing an Amazon warehouse in New York City. It's the first Amazon mm -hmm. facility to be successfully unionized in the United States. We've seen a union drive in Canada. They tried to organize some Amazon facilities here. Unsuccessful. The Teamsters tried to organize mm -hmm. Amazon in Canada without any success. But I find it really fascinating that this small union, sort of independent union, managed to actually do this in New York City. Have a listen to Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, here talking about his attitude toward unions. Have a listen to this. We don't believe that we need a union to be an intermediary between us and our employees. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, it's always the employee's choice. And, and that's how it should be. Okay, so he says that's how it should be. To, it's a worker's right to choose to join well, a union, but they, they will. Bezos and Amazon will fight tooth and nail here against this union now. A lot has been written about the working, poor working conditions at a lot of Amazon outlets in the United States. Oh. Uh, this is also New York City, which is the most union-friendly city in the entire uh, country. 
So it's not surprising it happened there. You're not going to see or, uh, Amazons in some of these uh, very weak unionized uh, states, um, you know, sign contracts because just you just don't have that union culture in so many parts of the United States. It's very much a New York. It's very much an urban. Uh, union situation in in the United States and in BC, the the percentage of private sector unions has been dropping for years. Yep. It's we're not seeing a rebirth of that uh, very much right now. When you talk about the labor movement in, in British Columbia, for example, it, the focus is very much on the public sector side because yeah. that's where it's almost one hundred percent unionized. The private sector side. I remember years ago, the BC Federation of Labor president and the and the head of the forestry workers union jack Monroe. i mean these were major figures on the political landscape of british Columbia. that's just not the case very anymore. powerful that they've been now replaced by public sector yeah. union presidents which you're going to hear a lot about in the in the weeks ahead as they're in the middle of negotiations right now almost 400,000 unionized workers in the public sector in bc's contracts all expired last week exception is the teachers union whose contract expires on june 30th at the end of the school year so everybody's in the, right now uh, at the bargaining table. Some have walked away and hit the pause button for a while. But what's crept onto the t- talks like never before is inflation, which is around 5% you think a there, year. You think there could be strikes because the unions are asking for a big raise? We don't know what the unions are asking for yet. One assumes that inflation is part of the, the base there, which is yeah. 5% a year. A 5% a year contract across the board for three years would cost the government about $9.5 billion, um, or cost the taxpayer $9.5 billion. I think the prospect for job action is, is higher than we've seen for years. Yeah. Uh, whether, yeah. whether that actually uh, comes to fruition remains unknown, but don't be surprised if it does, at least in some of the sectors. Okay, real quickly before we take a break and then take some calls, what's the latest on a fourth shot of the vaccine, another booster? So we're, should, we're getting an update tomorrow from Dr. Bonnie Henry on the update on the fourth dose or the second booster. The National Advisory Committee on uh, Immunization has been hard at work on this issue. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration of the United States approved the fourth dose. That now goes to the CDC down there, the Center for Disease Control, for final approval and distribution. And we're usually lag behind the states by a few weeks when it comes to approving vaccines. You know, they went first in the 5 to 11-year-olds, and then a few weeks later, we, we approved it as well uh, at, at Health Canada. So the expectation, talking to the Health Minister Agent Dix last week, the expectation is the fourth dose should be made available sometime this month, later this month or early May. And the first people to get it will be those in long-term care and those with immune-compromised uh, system who are clinically vulnerable. Uh, and then fi- and then 50 and over, like in the U.S.? Don't know. Uh, I wouldn't right. be surprised if, well. if it is 50 or over or 70 or over. Uh, right now, the, the information out there, the studies, is that the immunity starts to wane quicker in older population than younger population. We've had a six-month interval between doses. That's going to re- remain, I think, for the older, uh, probably people over the age of 70 or 80, whether or not we go to a longer interval for, say, 30 or 40-year-olds, that's what I think they're, they're, they're looking at right now. Keith Baldry is my guest. The phone lines are open. If you phone now, you're probably going to get through. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. We were talking off air about the plan by government to release some numbers here on the vaccination rate for healthcare workers, right? When is that happening? That's, that could happen as early as today or tomorrow. So if you recall, if it's long been a rule. If you want to work in a hospital or acute care setting or um, other facilities, the, it's been a mandatory vaccination rule. That's been on yeah. the books for months. Yeah. As a result, about 2,000 healthcare workers have chosen to leave their jobs because they refuse to be vaccinated. But that rule has not – the mandatory rule does not apply 
to other healthcare professionals such as dentists, chiropractors, um, a number of other healthcare work, naturopaths, for example. There's about 25 different categories, uh, tens of thousands of people. They had until March 31st to declare their vaccination status. If they refuse to declare, they're deemed to be non-vaccinated. The plan is to uh, allow people to know whether the healthcare professional they're seeking services from is vaccinated or not. Not no. sure how that's going to work. I'm not sure if it's going to be posted on a website or whether healthcare professionals are going to be required to post it themselves. That's very unclear. But, you know, you take uh, the chiropractor profession. There was a story early on in, in the pandemic how they, some of them actively refusing campaigned against vaccines. Yes, right. Uh, and we've seen uh, that you know, that profession in particular has had some issues with the vaccination uh, requirements. So it's going to be interesting to see what the take-up rate is in a number of these professions. It will be interesting, like, okay, let's say this information is disclosed. Would people want to know, is my dentist vaccinated? Is my dental hygienist vaccinated? And if they're not vaccinated, would I would I go to a different dentist? Well, yeah, like I mean, is that the uh, is that what the government's trying to do here to give people the information so they make make their yes. own choice? Yes, okay. my understanding is, is is to give the information out. The 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 first rule. Okay, Keith, let me interrupt you there right now, and let's go to the newsroom right now for some breaking news. Mike, Keith, this is Gord McDonald in the Global Newsroom. Premier John Horgan has announced on Twitter he has tested positive for COVID. He sent out the tweet just a few minutes ago. He says, fortunately, my symptoms are mild. Premier John Horgan testing positive for COVID-19. Of course, the Premier just getting over major treatment in the past few months, chemotherapy included, for throat cancer. Once again, Premier John Horgan announcing on Twitter this morning that he has tested positive for COVID-19, but he says, fortunately, my symptoms are mild. I'm Gord McDonald. Gord, thank you for that breaking news. Keith, your reaction to that? Not surprised. Uh, the, uh, I track this every day. The positivity rate uh, for COVID-19, the percentage of tests coming back positive, has slowly been increasing. John Horgan lives in the capital on Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island has the highest positivity rate in all of British Columbia wow. at about 18% uh, compared to less than 5% in Metro Vancouver about 14% in the interior and the north. These are seven-day rolling averages. So the capital and Vancouver Island, and there seems to be a little higher positivity rate just north of here in the Cowichan uh, area in Nanaimo. But the, the fact is, if you, look, if you go to the Center for Disease Control website, look at the map that's updated every Tuesday, you will see the higher percentage on a per capita um, basis is a little higher in the capital than it is in many other areas in BC. So not surprising that at a time when the case numbers are going up. Uh, but the key thing here, John Horgan says he has mild symptoms. And that's the case for pretty well the vast majority of people who test positive for COVID-19. Our hospitalization rate has not been going up. The ICU number is the lowest it's been since August as of Friday. So those are the, the severe illness associated with COVID-19 has declined in number. But we're starting to see an uptick now in the number of cases. And that's just not here. Ontario, same thing. Wastewater levels are starting to increase in terms of the de- detection of the virus. And we're not going to be different than that. I'm sure he will be, he and his doctor will be cautious, though, as a guy who is battling cancer and has gone through 35 radiation mm-hmm. treatments. And then you get you get COVID. Um, that's something to be careful about. Because we're told people, people with cancer patients are potentially more at risk, right? 
Yes. Oh, yeah. They're going to be yeah. monitoring that very closely. But again, he says he has mild symptoms. Mild, so that's, yeah. That's very encouraging. Now, it's going to be interesting. So he was here on Friday, if I recall. So, you know, we're everybody's in the hallway. Um, yeah. I didn't mm. see him personally, but I saw him sometime last week in the hallway. Uh, interesting if anybody else in the building now uh, in the legislature tests positive as a result. Okay. One All of the right. risks going, associated with opening the house up, there's masks are mandatory in the chamber. They're optional in the hallways. You must be vaccinated to enter the legislature. We've had a number of COVID-19 cases with staff people in the legislature. And now John Horgan is just the latest. Keith, thanks a lot. All right. And that's Keith Baldry. Thanks a lot, for Keith, for coming in. Baldry's beat. Let's talk about the controversy over the thin blue line patch that some police officers want to wear on their uniforms. The, the latest on this is in the city of Calgary and the association representing more than 2,000 Police officers in Calgary are now encouraging their members to wear the thin blue line patch in defiance of an order from the city's police commission. The commission had ordered the thin blue line patch not to be displayed. Will we see Calgary police officers wear that patch anyway? Now, what do you, if you're wondering what this patch is, it's a Canadian flag. Often the Canadian flag is shown in black and white colors with a, a literal thin blue line going through the middle representing uh, the police force. And this is not the first time this has become controversial. We've seen this in the past in Canada, including at the federal level with the RCMP a few years ago. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. Within policing communities across North America, the thin blue line has long been a symbol of support for one another. It really depicts the line that police officers walk every day, um, keeping society free from chaos. But critics say the symbol ignores the larger issue of police violence against racialized communities and promotes an us-versus-them mentality. All right, that report from uh, Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. You heard the voice of Brian Sove in there, the president of the union at the RCMP. He's been a past guest here on the show. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Michelle Bonner, professor of political science at the University of Victoria. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Bonner, thank you very much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is an interesting dispute that's happening in Calgary right now. What is the history of this uh, thin blue line patch or symbol when it, as it relates to the police? Um, uh, it has a, a very long uh, history in, in, um, uh, well, in, in various, uh, it's been used in various different ways, but also often um, evoked in the way that was, was just described as uh, this image of the police being the front line between order and chaos, uh, yeah. which it, it's, it, it itself um, some, somewhat problematic as in that there are many other actors who are also involved in um, in maintaining order in society, not uh, not just the police, um, but certainly has been used uh, in that way. Yeah, what do you think about the dispute in Calgary? Well, I think there's two big issues that it, it raises. Uh, the first is uh, civilian control over the police. 
Uh, I think it's very important to democracy that civilians uh, be in control of the police force and determining police policy. Oh, this is not something that's unique to the police. Uh, the civilians uh, are, are elected officials, rather, in a democracy, are responsible for the bureaucracy and making uh, decisions, policy decisions uh, for whatever bureaucracy that they're uh, responsible for. Uh, this becomes particularly concerning when we're talking about civilian control over an armed bureaucracy, such as the police. Uh, and in uh, uh, the concern in, in many democracies, when we start looking at, at democratic erosion, one uh, one way democracy can be eroded is when police uh, start gaining autonomy from uh, civilian authorities uh, and start making their own decisions, um, which uh, then un- undermines this idea of we've we've elected people to make decisions for us, uh, and uh, and and raises as uh, as autonomy for the police grows. There's always that potential that the police could start dictating policy for our elected representatives, which would then become very problematic for democracy. So I think it's very important that the police commission responds to this to uh, uh, assert, reassert uh, civilian control over the uh, over police forces. What kind of discipline could a police officer face? Let's well, we're talking about the city of Calgary, where the police mm. commission has said, "No, you're not allowed to wear this patch." You got the police officers' association. Uh, encouraging their members to wear the thin blue line patch anyway. If you do that in defiance of an order from the police commission, what kind of discipline could a police officer face for doing that? Could be fired for doing that or suspended? This is a question you'd have to ask the the police commission in Calgary. Each uh, uh, each police force will have their uh, and civilian command will have have uh, uh, their own um, processes for dealing with uh, insubordination, um, and uh, and that and that's true for all bureaucracies. You know, if you, if if any bureaucrat doesn't follow the policies set out by elected officials, there are processes to go through, and each uh, each bureaucracy will have its own. Um, uh, it, its own processes to go through. So that's more of a question for uh, for the police commission it's itself in it's Calgary. Inter- it's interesting to see how you have individual police associations and police unions taking a stand on this. I mean, we recently mm-hmm. saw uh, protests uh, right here in British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Uh, pro- people will remember the protests over old growth logging. There were a lot of arrests there. And a lot of protesters saying that they saw this patch on the uniforms of some RCMP officers, this thin blue line patch. Mm -hmm. And the RCMP union, the National Police Federation, said that they would defend uh, any police officer who wears this patch and defend them against any disciplinary action. Why do you think... Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was just saying that it's an unfortunate um, uh, position to take because of the um, not only the, the 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 undermining of civilian control over the police forces, but oh. I get the impression that sometimes police forces are uh, are doing this because they um, feel that 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 the population is questioning their legitimacy because of a lot of the critiques over over police violence, and they're using this away as as perhaps. Uh, reasserting their legitimacy, saying, well, well, we are important, we do important work, uh, and, 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 and they do. Uh, but the problem is that a symbol like the thin blue line can be interpreted in so many different ways. Um, and it is a lot of work is put into the police symbol, uh, the, uh, the, police, the whole uniform it is, is symbolically very important um, to represent 
police neutrality. Uh, and when they alter that uniform, uh, they, um, they could be introducing elements that unintentionally work to actually undermine police legitimacy because police legitimacy is tied to police being politically neutral. Uh, and if that symbol can be interpreted in ways uh, which it is, uh, that are not consistent with the way the police are interpreting it, um, it undermines that political neutrality and, 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 and as a result undermines the legitimacy of the police. Yeah, it's a difficult situation for civilian authorities, for sure, when you have a situation of some officers feel that they, they want to wear this patch in defiance of those, of those orders, but does it then become a test between uh, what the police officers and their union uh, want versus the civilian oversight and control that we're supposed to have? Um, well, that's the way it, it is, is is now um, developing. Uh, and yeah. like I said before, um, this is uh, an important test on how much autonomy does the police have relative to civilian uh, to civilian authorities. Um, and so, again, it will become very important how civilian authorities respond. If the civilian authorities see this um, patch as, um, as problematic, as divisive, yeah. as some of the political leaders have, have said, um, then they should uh, be able to, in representing the population, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, ask that it be removed. And, and if the police can resist that, uh, that raises some serious questions about, uh, uh, about democracy. What would you say to someone who would make the argument, well, does it really matter if there's a patch on a police officer's uniform? Is that really such a big deal? And if it's important to the police officer, they should be allowed to wear it and it doesn't bother me. Why do you think it's important for a line to be drawn on the issue? Um, again, it's very important that the police be viewed uh, as legitimate and politically neutral by all citizens so that citizens will uh, feel comfortable when the police are around, that they will report crimes, that they will work with the police uh, when uh, the police are needing witnesses. Uh, so it's very important to the police's work that they be viewed by the population as a whole as legitimate. And if there are segments of the population uh, who uh, uh, see that patch in a way that is um, that undermines their confidence in the police, that makes them less trustful. That ultimately is a problem for the police uh, going forward and their ability to, to do their to do their work. So that some people see it as okay um, is not sufficient for a police force that we need uh, to be able to respond to the needs of all citizens and not just some uh, some citizens. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate yeah. it. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Dr. Michelle Bonner there from the University of Victoria with her thoughts on the thin blue line patch controversy uh, in the Calgary Police Department. McDonald's Big Mac, it's more than just another hamburger. There are two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions on a sesame seed bun. Seven great ingredients working together to make one great taste. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Get the idea? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. It's your McDonald's Big Mac. You've got to taste it to believe it, you know what I mean? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Okay, let's talk fast food now. What kind of impact does it have on your body and your health? Now, you heard that classic McDonald's commercial there for 
the Big Mac. Now, I will admit, I will occasionally indulge in one. Let's check out what's in a Big Mac here. The Big Mac has roughly 540 calories, 29 grams of fat, 9 grams of sugar. There's sugar in a Big Mac? Yeah, of course there is. 9 grams of sugar and more than 1,000 milligrams of sodium. Now, that's just for the sandwich, okay? Now, you throw in a side of fries and a Coke. Whoa. Now you're talking some big numbers. What does this do to your body? Let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Julie Gatza. Julie is a health educator. She's with the Florida Wellness Institute. Hey, Julie. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. So let's talk about when you have a, a, a... a fast food meal. So let's talk about, you know, a Big Mac, side of fries, and a drink. You've done some interesting research on precisely what this does to your body on a minute-by-minute basis. So let's talk about that. Like, what's the first thing that kicks in from a, from a fast food meal after you eat it? Well, in the first five minutes, you have a sugar rush. So your yeah. um, blood sugar begins to rise, and you feel a, sh- a surge, and it's probably one of the happiest times that you're eating. <laughs> yeah, it After always that, feels, about, that first bite always feels pretty good. That's right. You have a surge yeah. of energy and, you know, if your blood sugar, if you were hungry and you came to the table hungry, then you feel better from just that. Right. Um, you go uh, 15 minutes into this and because fast food is loaded with so much um, salt, what you start to have is some dehydration within the body at a cellular level. Right. And so now you'll want to have something to drink, which is generally uh, a Coke or some um, soft drink that goes along with this. Generally, people don't order water with their Big Macs. And so um, what that does is it keeps you from absorbing the nutrition. When you drink coffee, tea, soda pop, and carbonation, it blocks how you actually absorb. So now you've got food that is sitting in your gut that you really can't get in as nutrition easily, so it's going to sit there and ferment. (laughs) Okay, so that kicks in about, that sort of dehydration will kick in about, what, 15 minutes after you've eaten. You got it. And then 20 minutes, you get, um, often fatty foods are slow to digest and they spend longer um, in the stomach. So you can start to have heartburn, uh, uncomfortable feeling, you're too full, but, you know, you start to see that you're not actually able to um, break down the meal. So it's coming up some way and this is where you start to feel some indigestion. Yeah, I tend to, I will occasionally suffer from a, a bit of heartburn. And for a lot of people, though, it can be really bad. Like, it can be really chronic, right? It is often, and it's because they can't digest. So yeah. we aren't making enough digestive enzymes in our bodies in general overall because of our food quality and our choices. So whatever we're eating, even when we're eating decent meals, we're not able to break those um, foods down and properly get the nutrition into the bloodstream and then properly get the toxins out of the body. Okay, so that's about 20 minutes after you've eaten your fast food meal and then moving along about 30 minutes after you've eaten your, your, your Big Mac and fries and a drink. What happens next? So now you've got this food sitting there, not being able to uh, be absorbed properly, and it's fermenting and basically uh, causing bloating and gas. And now you're starting to regret the fact that you made that choice <laughs> yeah. and wish that you would have picked something a little healthier that doesn't cause you the uh, the aftermath. Yeah, there is, there is a bit of buyer's remorse sometimes after you have one of these meals. It's great at the start, and then sometimes you'll regret it later. Uh, often I don't, but sometimes I do. Uh, then right. for, 45 minutes after, you, after you've had the meal, Julie, what happens then? 
So what happens is you get this sugar drop. So you have this rapid blood um, spike in the sugar when you first start eating. But after that, it doesn't just level out and become a normal um, energy level. It goes lower than when you started. And this is where people are moody and kids are surly and now everybody's in a bad mood and no one's getting along properly or you can't stand your coworkers or you want to quit your job and it's simply because your blood sugar is now gone lower than it was before you were hungry. Why, why does it do that so quickly? So you go from like a sugar high to like a sugar crash in the space of an hour? Well, it, yeah, and it happens because of a, um, a, your surge of insulin that helps you to um, process uh, the food and once you've used that up, now this is why eating this way is so tough on the body because it's not a steady gain in energy. It's not a steady um, nutritional, you know, feed to the cells. This is a huge, you know, spike up, then you crash down. And this is what's happening daily to people who are eating this way. And, you know, you're setting yourself up for hypoglycemia. You're setting yourself up to be a diabetic when you start um, Mm. treating your body in this uh, form more often than you should. Right. Speaking of Dr. Julie Gatza, we're talking about the impact of fast food on your body and on a minute by minute basis after you eat a fast food meal. Okay. So once we get to around an hour after you eat, are you still getting impacts from the meal? You are. You've got poor concentration. You're in a bad mood. Um, Why you, is that? Why is that? <laughs> well, when you, when you're eating this type of food, it can trigger brain fog. It can trigger the fact that um, you're not breaking down these foods properly. So they're sitting in the gut, they're fermenting, they're causing inflammation right about an hour. Now you've got an inflamed bowel and uh, on the inside, I'm talking inflamed. So now you're not feeling so great and you haven't gotten the nutrients that you should from eating a proper meal. And this is where your body's trying to um, compensate. But in the meantime, you uh, are feeling pretty poorly and uh, now you're feeling um, in, maybe in some type of pain and it doesn't necessarily have to be just in the gut. Maybe your joints are achy a bit, your back hurts, you know, maybe you have a little bit of a headache and it's because of the inflammation in the body. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about eating this way and the way I've always looked at it is everything in moderation. So I will occasionally have a fast food meal, I will often enjoy it, but, you know, I'm not eating it every day. It's kind of like a treat now and then, right? Like, Or would you say that's okay, or would you say you should never eat this stuff? No, I think it's totally okay. We have a, a country that has so many choices. We have so many ethnicities in this country and so many different things that we can choose to enjoy. And, you know, this is kind of how we were as kids. We got these treats of meals, you know, going to these fast food restaurants um, I grew up in the Midwest, so this was, you know, maybe a once a month, maybe twice a month that um, my mom would take all five of us, you know, to the, one of these restaurants and we'd enjoy yeah. ourselves and certainly on vacations. But I think, you know, if people understand what it's doing to you, great. Now you know, so do it on occasion. Enjoy yourself. It's just the real problem is because our food source, because of so many um, choices that are acceptable that really aren't acceptable, we are not making enough enzymes in our bodies to break down these foods anymore. So I would say over 80% of the people that I've seen as a doctor over the last 30 years all have some type of digestive problem. And so the first thing that we take a look at is, are they making enough enzymes? That answer is almost always no. And if they're not, enzymes are um, key and paramount to being able to break down those foods into small bits to get into the cells so that you can get your health back or stay healthy. 
So I've been giving people high-quality digestive enzymes. The one that I use right now is Absorbate because it works the way that it's supposed to and breaks down the proteins and the fats and the um, dairy products and the carbohydrates so that you can get those nutrients from those um, different types of foods that you're eating. Okay, Dr. Gatza, please stand by here as we fit in a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about this. I'll open the phone lines, too. So phone me now and tell me if you enjoy the occasional fast food meal. What kind of impact does it have on your body and mind after you consume a fast food meal? Does the timeline that Dr. Gatza just outlined, does that sound familiar to you? I think maybe some people can tolerate fast food better than others, but phone me and tell me, do you enjoy eating a fast food meal? Phone me and tell me which one's your favorite. If you have any questions about your health and how fast food can affect your health, call me right now. Hey, Julie, just before we take a couple of calls here, I remember when I was was a younger guy, I used to eat more fast food than I would now. And I seemed, I don't know, my body seemed to tolerate it more when I was younger. Is that common? It is. And think about it like a um, having a safe of money um, at the bank. And over time, you start to whittle away at those reserves. This is what occurs to us when we don't have enough reserves left and we've you know, changed our habits into a little less than optimal. And it's what's happening to the kids in this country right now. Um, actually, you know, I, I'm in America, but I've got to think that it's very common in Canada as, as well. But the fact is that they aren't given the choices that we were given when we were growing up. So their choices are limited. They're getting much more fast food and choices that they think are okay. And they do not have this storage. So, you know, we may be getting certain um, non-optimal health conditions, but they're probably going to end up with those earlier because they don't have the um, reserves to, to pull from. Okay. okay. Let's take a couple of calls here and see what people think. Dexter on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dexter. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Um, so my relationship with fast food has actually been kind of funny. And the reason I say funny is because I, I uh, did bodybuilding and uh, my body is an ectomorph. So I'm tall, I'm lanky. And for the longest time, it was hard to actually gain weight. So I ended up finding a method that worked perfectly for me that actually gained weight. I was healthy and I was gaining muscle mass. And basically, before I would work out, I would go to Tim Hortons. I would grab some muffins from there. I would eat two to three. I would get the carbs. I would get the fast-acting sugars, like you're saying, the fats. I would go work out, and I would get a, a, a great pump. My muscles felt full, felt good. After, I would drive straight to McDonald's, and I would get two <laughs> McDoubles and a junior chicken. And if you actually look at the protein, the fats, and all that, it was great. I was able to do that all the way up to eight weeks out from my competition. And, like, nobody else, nobody does that. And I did that naturally. So I how feel old, like how old, were you when, how old were you when you did that? Uh, about 30 years old. Wow. Julie, what, yeah, do, you, what and, do you... Yeah, go ahead, Dexter. Go ahead. Well, I find that fast food, though, is everybody's body is different, though. Yeah. And I feel like being an ectomorph really did help me out. But I actually stopped working out, stopped being so fit, and I still eat a, a reasonable amount of fast food, kind of like you, once a week, kind of twice a week. And I still I don't find any negative effects on my body, like lethargic or slow or fat uh, buildup or anything like that. Okay. Dr. Gatso, what do you think of that? Dexter, how old are you now? I'm 34. Okay, so you still have reserves. 
So, and the other aspect is there is genetics that do come into play. You do see people who stay thin and lanky and, you know, spry up until their 70s and 80s. And, you know, everyone is, you know, they're the wonder. But the fact is most people do not have this type of luck in the genetic pool. And so most of us are suffering when we do this. Now, keep in mind, you are still fairly young and you've got, you know, athleticism behind you and you've got, you know, a digestive system that is still working up to par. It's just over time, um, you just won't be getting the nutrition that you need at a cellular level. And it starts to show up around 40 where you start to look like everyone else is 40. Like you get the paunch, the dad body, you know, you're a little more sluggish and yet you still got some time before that shows. And you may just be the luck of the draw that doesn't have it. So I wish that for you. Okay, Dexter, thank you for sharing that. Terry on the line in New West. Hi, Terry, go ahead. Hey, how are you guys doing? Um, I'm 66, but about 15 years ago, um, I ended up with pain in both legs. That was incredible. It came out of nowhere. I was walking down the hill to go to work and couldn't walk. Um, Then I ended up with pain in both legs to the point where um, I had a cane for each leg and I thought it was bone cancer. So what I did was I got a hold of my doctor, went in, got a a test for what was going on, and I was eating burgers all the time because I was stressed out from uh, my job at the time. I wasn't doing well on my job. Yeah. And uh, he came back and phoned me, you know, after the results came in, he said, you have gout. Gout. So yeah. I went, oh, my God. It was it, one night I got, came from work. Uh, I, it took me half an hour. I was in such severe pain to walk only two blocks to the apartment from the bus stop. So he, the doctor, I'll be grateful forever, he said to me, cut down on the red meat. Um, yeah. And eat strawberries and grapes. So I started doing that, started eating the strawberries and the grapes, and uh, within six weeks, the gut was gone, and I hope it never comes back, but that's just a product of eating a bad diet. Okay, Terry, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that turned around for you. We just got a minute left here, Julie. What do you think of that? I think it's extremely common. It's been around since, you know, there's kings in England that were suffering from gout because of this heavy red meat diet, things like this that are, you know, very high in fat. Um, I do know that the one way that I've changed gout for the last 30 years is to clean up the diet, make sure that people are also taking enzymes to break down their food so that they get the most nutrition. Because if you're low in nutrients, you're going to be susceptible to any type of disease that sort of runs in your family or that you're, you know, have habits that would pull that in. Dr. Gatza, it's been a pleasure having talking to you on the show today. Very grateful to you for your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. And if anyone's interested in the Absorbid, they can um, uh, get on Amazon for Canada and uh, look up the Absorbid. It's wonderful. Kids, pets, older um, people, and yourself. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about British Columbia's endangered caribou herds now. We've talked about this on the show before. There are several threatened herds of caribou in the BC interior. Some of them are down to a very small number of animals, but there are efforts underway to save them, sometimes controversial too. Let's discuss now with my guest, Clayton Lamb. Clayton is a wildlife scientist at UBC and the University of Montana, and he's been working to save the caribou. Hey, Clayton. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Clayton, how many caribou are left right now? 
you know, in the herds that we're working on in the sort of central piece, there's now 114 caribou in that herd, which is up from, and there was only 38 in 2013, but, you know, that's not the case for a number of other herds across southern British Columbia and Alberta, some of which have actually, you know, gone to zero in the last 20 years. Yeah, we've actually lost some of these herds, right? Will they never come back? Yeah, you know, we've lost a dozen of the about 40 or so herds in southern British Columbia and Alberta. And no, I mean, they, they will not come back, I don't think, without, you know, some, some relocation or interventions in which we, you know, turn around their fate like, like has been done in Kunziza. Yeah, no, it's a really amazing work you've done. Let's talk about that specific herd that you've been working on. And you mentioned the number 114 animals, which, you know, may sound like it's obviously a very low number, but that's actually pretty good, right, compared to what the numbers were in the past. Yeah, I think so. It's all it's all relative. I mean, uh, circa 2013, these animals, there's there only about 38 of them, and they'd been declining from, you know, many hundreds about 20 years before. And you know, essentially, if nothing had been done in 2013, then these animals would not be with us today. But, of course, that is not the situation. A, a pretty um, incredible recovery effort led by Wes Moverly and Soto First Nations and supported by uh, the BC and, and federal governments and, and independent scientists basically all worked together and has now have now tripled the, the abundance of these caribou, which is a pretty unprecedented conservation success in, you know, what is thought to be an endangered species that is, you know, very difficult to recover. Right. And you mentioned the involvement of some of the, the First Nations here, which has been key, the West Moberly First Nation, the Salto First Nation. What kind of work are they doing to save these, these her, this herd? I, I mean, the, the nations are really supporting the effort on many different fronts. I mean, at, at the highest level, they're exercising their, their treaty rights to a subsistence livelihood to make sure that uh, these caribou stay around so that, you know, they're in the mountains that they've, you know, long relied on and they can one day hunt these caribou again. And all the way through to, um, you know, reducing the density of wolves to the to the point that it would more naturally reflect the number of wolves that used to be on this landscape, uh, you know, in the landscape that caribou evolved in. And then uh, there's Indigenous guardians at a maternal pen 24-7 looking after caribou from basically March until July when they're released with their calves. So, you know, the nations are doing a lot of different things on many different fronts to make sure that this succeeds. Yeah, and you put your finger on something that's of interest to me, and that's the, the wolf uh, issue and the wolf predation that goes on with these threatened animals. And there is a wolf call in British Columbia to thin out the number of wolves to protect the caribou, and it, it's controversial to say the least. We've talked about that on the show before. Uh, let me play a clip here for you, Clayton. So this is, um, we had a lot of celebrities weigh in on this one, including Miley Cyrus, uh, the American pop star who came to British Columbia with a message to stop this wolf call. Here's what she had to say. Miley Cyrus, have a listen to this. Young people that really do want to make a change, that aren't set in these ways of, well, we shoot animals. Hopefully that's the dying breed here. Hopefully that's what goes extinct. The reason why I am here is I want to see the wolf call ended. Yeah, okay, so Miley Cyrus, and she's just one of a lot of high-profile people who have spoken out against this wolf call. Tough issue. I mean, it's controversial, Clayton, for sure, but do you think it's the right thing to do to take some of those wolves out? I mean, it's incredibly controversial. I'd say it's something that we certainly don't take lightly. Um, you know, in addition to the voices of, uh, you know, celebrities, which I think is, is an important component of the dialogue, of course, 
you know, we have to think about the people that are on the land and that have, you know, long um, interactions with these these caribou and and know a lot about them and these complicated landscapes. So, you know, I'm not necessarily, um, uh, you know, the voice that should be speaking to that. But, you know, there's First Nations, of course, West Moberly and Soto First Nations that could speak to that and in a more nuanced way and that they understand predator-prey dynamics and how that landscape has been drastically changed. I mean, we're talking about wolf densities that are three, four, five times the density that caribou probably evolved with. And it's pretty clear that the density of wolves is not working for caribou on the landscape. And we're having basically unsustainable predation rates on these caribou that is making landscape non-viable for caribou. So the, the gold standard here is that we have to recover this landscape to a point that it will sustain caribou and that comes through habitat restoration and protection but it takes a long time to do that so the wolf reduction is meant to sort of hold us over in the meantime and some places we're doing that properly like Kunziza where you know there's been almost 8,000 square kilometers of habitat um, protection for caribou like 50% larger than Banff National Park and we're not doing as well in other places where there's sort of wolf control and no meaningful advances in habitat restoration. Right. Well, it's amazing some of the progress that you guys are making here and, and seeing this threat, this particularly threatened herd uh, bounce back. And you mentioned, Clayton, the use of maternal penning for these animals, right? Could you describe how that works? Like my understanding of it is that when you've got the, the mother caribou about to have their calves, they're directed into an area where they're fenced in. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, basically. So one of the challenges for these caribou is um, when there's not very many of them and there's a number of different predators on the landscape, they lose their calves at really high rates. So the caribou, yeah. they're not inside the pen. Some of their calves are being killed within two days of being born. And we've seen this on video callers of caribou. And so what the maternal pen aims to do is allow those calves to grow up and, um, you know, reach a point where they're less vulnerable, even like at four to eight weeks, they're pretty well good to go. But that first little bit is so important. And what a caribou maternal pen is basically really simple. It's a, it's landscaping cloth, just black cloth. that's kind of strung between trees and it's up at elevation in a big wintry Northern Rocky basin. And the caribou basically live in there. It's, it's just shy of 40 acres or 15 hectares. And, Caribou live up there. They're they're fed and looked after by Indigenous guardians 24-7, and they're basically in there from March till July. And, they you know, they have their calves in May and June, and they raise their calves up till their legs are strong and they're ready to deal with the world outside, and then they're released. Yeah, yeah and, and the penning keeps the wolves out, I assume. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, the... Um, Outside of that black landscaping cloth is a is a two pretty strong electric fences that you know keep predators out. The caribou are fairly easy to keep in. They don't have they don't even touch the electric fencing because it's on the outside of the cloth. They they take pretty well to captivity, but you know obviously the wolves would love to get in there if they could, but we don't let them. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating the way that uh, this has been been handled, and certainly the the uh, progress is quite evident that you described. Like, what about um? Uh, resource extraction in these areas, whether it's mining, logging, how does that impact the equation here? I mean, in this herd, that's why this work is is pretty, um, it's a landmark example in that during these, uh, what we consider short-term um, conservation actions, like the the removal of the wolves and maternal penning, the, the goal was always to try to secure that habitat and try to restore it to a point that it would work better for these caribou. And 
And in 2020, West Moberly and Soto First Nations signed a partnership agreement with Canada and BC to protect 8,000 square kilometers of habitat. So, you know, a major area. Um, and that now is sort of the, the blueprint that within those disturbed zones, which did have industry, the restoration that will happen will kind of, um, you know, it, it's secure. There won't be restoration happening in one drainage while logging is happening in the adjacent one. You're just kind of, you know, meeting in net zero. So here we have quite a significant protection and the restoration will now um, start happening quite aggressively. Okay, well, there's cause for hope for sure. Thanks for coming on to talk about your work. I appreciate it. Thank you.